Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening your eyes to a new view of life. Kay Christensen, and I'm thrilled you joined us today. You know, this podcast is a bit different from others you may listen to. It's not a daily news podcast. It's not crime junkie, or it's not dedicated to a social cause. This podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life. And the belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. We believe at the foundation of our behavior and beliefs is the way we see the world and ourselves in it. So this podcast can hopefully give you a new perspective and a few paradigms to empower you to think and live differently. And if you find something useful here today, please share the link to this podcast with a friend. It just may be what they need in their life today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about getting your life back. In the news not long ago was the story of DeMar Hamlin, a defensive back for the Buffalo Bills, who collapsed on the field during a game with the Cincinnati Bengals. Hamlin was making a tackle, got hit in the chest, and fell to the turf. Now, it's not uncommon to see injuries on the football field, and it's not entirely uncommon to see players fall due to an injury. And more often than not, when they do, it's due to a concussion. But on this night, on national television, Hamlin fell backwards because he was in cardiac arrest. His heart stopped, and he was, for a short time, dead. Luckily, the medical team was close by, and they administered CPR quickly. The fact that Hamlin had, in fact, died, his heart stopping on the field, was a shock to the players and the audience. Well, later, his heart stopped again, and CPR was once again administered and his heartbeat restored. He would spend days under intensive care with the latest in modern medicine helping him restore his breathing and neurological and heart function. But he isn't the only player or person on the field or stage to get his life back, to have his heart stop and be resuscitated by CPR. Bernard Gallagher is a former professional golfer who played in eight Ryder Cup competitions. In August 2013, he had just finished a meal and was standing up to give a speech at a golf club in Aberdeen. He fell to the floor like he had been hit by a boxer falling backwards. Now, some spectators at the event thought it was part of a slapstick comedy before his speech. But lucky for Bernard, two nurses were on hand at the hotel and knew exactly what to do. One who was an acquaintance of Bernard's even noticed that he had been slurring his words earlier. Well, the two nurses went to work administering CPR. For 20 minutes, they administered breaths to Bernard, and the hotel safety administrator finally arrived with the defibrillator. In total, Bernard died three times, and each time, the defibrillator brought him back. Edward Robbins, a comedian and actor, was starring in Phoenix Nights in a sold-out arena when he suffered cardiac arrest in front of 10,000 people. He was on stage performing when he clutched his chest. Now, like others, he fell backwards as if he'd been punched by a boxer. Obviously, it took a minute to realize that it was not part of his acting or part of the play, and he got help. In the audience was a paramedic and a doctor, and they both ran forward and started to administer CPR. They restored his heartbeat and breathing and gave him his life back. 
Fabrice was a star soccer player for the Bolton Wanderers. One night, during a televised match, Fabrice went into ventricular fibrillation. Now, this medical emergency happens rapidly and involves chaotic electrical activity in the heart. And it stops pumping in its usual way, so oxygenated blood can't pump from the left to the right ventricles. Well, he fell in similar fashion like a boxer had knocked him out. Fortunate for him, there were five medically trained assistants and a doctor on site to assist him. Even luckier, though, was the fact that Dr. Andrew Diener, a cardiologist at London's Chest Hospital, was spectating. Initially, two stewards wouldn't let the doctor on the field, but he found an older steward who then let him on the field to help. There, two defibrillator shocks were administered, and one in the tunnel again as he was being moved by stretcher, and then 12 more in the ambulance. Now, the hospital was eight miles away, and in total, his heart stopped for eight minutes, an incredible amount of time, and he lived. CPR is used often to save lives. A few years ago, a 22-month-old child tripped and fell into Buffalo Creek near Mifflinburg, Pennsylvania. He was swept downstream a quarter of a mile before he washed up on the bank where a neighbor found him. When he was found, he had no pulse, he wasn't breathing, and he had likely been in the freezing water for 30 minutes. As soon as the ambulance arrived, the paramedics began CPR, and they continued until they arrived at the hospital. Upon arrival, the child's temperature was 77 degrees Fahrenheit, so doctors continued resuscitation and started to warm his body. In total, CPR was carried out for one hour and 47 minutes. Once he was warm, the boy was placed on a ventilator. He survived. So, how does a person die and be resuscitated and live again? Well, one way is CPR. And CPR, while something we're used to having in our lifetime, is a rather modern medical miracle. In 1960, three doctors combined new advancements in mouth-to-mouth breathing techniques with chest compressions, and they called it CPR. The American Heart Association formally endorsed CPR for the first time in 1963. And as the understanding of the human body grew, so did the science of CPR and defibrillators. By the way, the same doctors who developed CPR also developed the first external and portable defibrillator. In total, it is estimated that 70,000 people are saved each year because of CPR. And statistics show that if CPR is administered within four minutes of cardiac arrest, Brain damage is not likely. Now, we spend a lot of time training and helping people learn CPR in North America today. And it's likely that you've attended a CPR class at one time or another. But we spend very little time helping people resuscitate other important parts of their lives and wellness each year. We need resuscitation emotionally and mentally. Sometimes we need spiritual resuscitation as well. And in many ways, most of us at one time or another need to be brought back to life. Perhaps we've given up, perhaps we've abandoned a goal, or we lose the vitality needed to help us prosper and thrive. In other words, sometimes we need a bit of emotional or mental or spiritual CPR. We need to get the life back into our goals, our business, and even our attitude in life. I know in my life, 
I've needed this type of CPR many times. And in the course of this CPR, I've learned a few things that I thought I'd pass on to you today about getting your life back. As you go about creating resuscitation for your business or life, there are three key questions we all must ask and answer. And the answers will lead us out of our stalled state to a new life. I've seen it work for many businesses, for people, and in other situations as well. And the first question is this. What drives success in your life or business? Almost everything has a key driver or two. For example, in your business, perhaps a key driver is how many active business partners you're teamed up with. This is a key driver because new customers are found by these new business partners. And if business partners are the key driver, then most of your time should be spent finding, fostering, and improving those partners. In your life, a key driver of your career may be your ability to work effectively with people. And all other things may hinge on your people skills. And if so, you've identified where your time will best be spent to drive yourself and your career forward. But here's the problem. Too often, we don't identify the drivers of our life or business. For example, I know a wonderful couple that wanted to start a restaurant. They both loved food and cooking and creating new dishes with tons of creativity. And they were energized and hopeful that their love for food and their creative cooking skills would translate to a restaurant business that would provide them the means to pursue their hobby for the rest of their life. And they invested their savings and borrowed funds into the restaurant only to find that they were not attracting the customers they needed for a profitable business. Well, as we talked and analyzed their business, they soon realized that they could be the best cooks in the world, but if they couldn't bring new customers in to try their cooking, the quality of their food didn't matter. Marketing and reaching new customers became a key driver for them. And they soon found that quality labor and employees in the food service industry are hard to come by. And they learned that hiring and keeping the best talent was another driver that was key to their success. Here they thought food was the driver, when in fact, marketing and recruiting were the drivers. Well, after we spoke, we discovered that if they could become really good at the key drivers of marketing and recruiting, then that would enable customers to try their food and the food would in fact bring them back. By doing this and becoming really good at marketing, it would free them up to do what they wanted, which was to cook, and it would bring life back to their restaurant and to them in their business. The same goes for you. In your life right now and trying to reach the goals that you're pursuing this year, what are the drivers? For example, perhaps you set a goal this year to improve your ability to bring new customers to your business. And as you assess the drivers of this goal, you realize that you need to get in front of significantly more contacts than you have in the past. Therefore, a key driver would be getting involved in the right new groups, both in person and online. And this would involve learning all you can about how to reach the right prospects and so forth. The point is learn what drives your goal and focus almost exclusively on that driver. Now, what you'll find is this means you'll need to say no to a few things. You'll need to say no to less effective activities and wasted efforts. 
they may need to go by the wayside so you can bring your business and goals to life by focusing on your drivers. And if you were trying to resuscitate a debt person, you wouldn't check your text messages and do less important things of administering CPR. Likewise, to revive a slightly dead business means you don't have time to keep tending to those things because you're focused on the drivers of your business. To summarize, I've seen businesses, goals, and people revived by identifying and focusing on key drivers because it frees them up to let other things go and it gives them renewed energy to do a few focused things well. Next, discover what works. When you find what works, you then know what to repeat and what to systematize. To bring your goals back to life, find what works. For example, perhaps your goals this year are to get back into shape. What you've been doing is not working, so you have to find what works. Perhaps you need to establish the daily routine of getting out of the house in the morning and getting to the gym. And you can do that with a friend, so you're more apt to do it. You see, by doing what works, you'll find life brought back to your goals. You know the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing you've always done and expecting different results. You know, years ago, I ran a marathon that followed the route that early pioneers took over the Continental Divide and down Immigration Canyon near Salt Lake City. It was the most grueling run of my life. Huge elevation climbs and descents. And one of the pioneers who took that route in 1846 was named George Donner. Donner joined hundreds of people and families who were leaving Missouri and Ohio and other territories and were headed to Oregon and California. And the key factor or driver in the journey was beating the snow in the Sierra Nevada mountains. If you were stuck there in late fall or winter, you would die. So on May 12th, a group of nine wagons containing 32 members of the Reed and Donner families left Independence, Missouri, headed for California. Donner was 60 years old. His partner, James Reed, was 49. Reed wanted to reach the warm climate of California, believing it would help his wife's ailing health. Well, they were well-equipped with large wagons and healthy and strong livestock. By June 16th, they had traveled about 450 miles, and they had about 200 miles more to get to Fort Laramie, Wyoming. But rain and rising waters delayed their travels by over a week. Worried that they were behind schedule, Donner was approached by a rider carrying a letter from Lansford Hastings. Hastings was promoting a new, shorter path to California. So instead of following the Oregon Trail to Idaho and then turning south through northern Nevada, as most travelers had done because it worked, Hastings was promoting cutting south earlier, traveling down Immigration Canyon near Salt Lake City, traveling across the Great Salt Lake Desert and onto the Sierra Nevada Mountains. This would shorten the journey by 300 miles. Now, because Donner was behind schedule, he was persuaded to take the shorter, hardly traveled path, relying on the fact that Hastings himself would meet them and guide them. But because they were delayed, Hastings went with a group ahead of the Donner Party. The Donner Party had large wagons that were difficult to navigate in the new terrain that didn't have established trails. So the party soon found themselves forced to lock the wheels of their wagons to prevent them from rolling down steep inclines and the wagons were just too heavy to pull up the steep hills. They were slow in going, 
and it took them until August 20th to reach the summit of the Continental Divide and begin their descent towards Great Salt Lake. When they reached the Salt Lake Valley, it was August 30th. They estimated it would take them about two days without water and grass for the animals to cross the desert. What they found was the salt flats were a gummy mass. Wagon wheels sunk, days were hot, nights desperately cold, and it took them six days without water and grass to cross the desert. Everyone in the party was exhausted. The shortcut had taken 30 days longer than the Oregon Trail that worked. As they pushed over the Sierra Nevada mountains near Truckee Lake on October 20th, the deep snow stopped them, and the snow kept falling. It snowed for a week straight. Food was gone. The oxen who pulled the wagons were dying, and the families lost almost everything. There were three small cabins that were filled with people, and they were disgustingly filthy. With the food gone, they ate everything. One family boiled the rug for soup. Ox and horse bones were boiled to make a glue-like jelly to eat. They caught all the mice they could to eat. And with the dead and dying, the cabins were hardly livable. A few men had gone for help, but their rescue attempts failed. The military in California was engaged in the Mexican-American War and couldn't help. Finally, on February 18th, a seven-man rescue party scaled what is now called Donner Pass and brought some food to the remaining members of the Donner Party. Only a portion of the people could be evacuated, and it would take until March 14th before all were rescued. By this time, some members of the party had resorted to eating the dead. Of the 81 people, including the Donner Party, who became stranded at Trucker Lake, only 48 people survived. Here's the point. Had Donner and Reed done what works, if they had followed the Oregon Trail, they would have arrived in California by September, avoiding the snow and reaching their goal. But because they had been late and delayed, and because they were ignorant to many things, because they had some hubris, confidence in their large wagons and teams, or maybe because they didn't ask the right questions, they chose not to do what works. And it resulted in the death of people and their goals. Here's the point. Sometimes we set goals and go about trying to reach those goals using whatever path is before us without really considering what works. But if we were to listen and watch and consider what works and what other people are doing that works, we could more easily get back on track, back to our goals, and back to living a better life. As Tony Robbins says, long ago I realized that success leaves clues and that people who produce outstanding results do specific things to create those results. And I believe that if I precisely duplicated the actions of others, I could reproduce the same quality of results that they had. Now, this is an extremely powerful principle. Years ago, I had a person I respected a great deal give me some advice, and I followed it in part. He told me to read one biography of an excellent person, an excellent life, each month. He said that reading biographies is different than other books. You get to see things from another person's point of view. And if you're reading the right biography, you get to see things from the point of view of a person who has lived an excellent life. You get to put their view on your window. Well, I followed his advice. And for a while thereafter, I kept a biography on my bed and would read before I went to sleep. 
This was a time of real growth for me. There was something wonderful about the proximity of the lives of those people written about in those biographies to me during that time. And I've tried to copy some of their behavior, and I've definitely used their perspective. My point's this. It worked. Do what works. Now, if you were to consider one of the most successful addiction recovery programs in history, you'd have to conclude that one is Alcoholics Anonymous. A few years ago, two Rhode Island researchers did a comprehensive review of research behind AA, and they reviewed 13 studies that had been conducted to determine the mechanisms that led to successful intervention and change by those people who attended AA. And here's what the researchers learned. AA was not successful due to its training content or processes. These were only mild factors in the person's ability to find lasting change. However, the chief reason that the program worked was its ability to provide free, long-term, easy proximity and exposure to companionship, other people's example of modeling behavior, and faith in a higher power. You see, it was the proximity to people engaged in the same endeavor that makes AA work. When someone can get close to others, they can find success. AA works. It literally resuscitates people who have given up and into a habit and brings them back to life. Do what works. And this is true for you. If you're leading a team and you want to reach your goals, do what works and stick to what works. Let's say you're trying to stick to your New Year's goals for weight loss or exercise. We'll use the principle learned from AA. Get proximate or close to people that are doing the same thing and grow in your understanding of what's required and what works. So find what drives yourself, your goals, or your business, then find what works. Now, on to the third part of CPR for you or your business. Find what matters. Do what matters most. In my organization each year, we spend time thinking about the next year. And it's common to have slightly different imperatives each year depending on the economy or goals or other factors. But what I try to do is give direction to the team as to what matters most. And this allows us to gather and prioritize the resources necessary to reach our goals. And in your life and business, it's likely the same. You can't do everything. So do what matters. You know, years ago, I collaborated on a book called The Three Gaps with Hiram Smith. Hiram, who's since passed away, was the co-founder of Franklin Covey. And he was famous for helping people and organizations identify what matters most. His most famous analogy was told by one person this way. I was at a meeting with Hiram Smith, and Hiram asked us to jot down five life goals. As I wrote my own goals, I settled on things like a beautiful oceanside home with a grand deck overlooking the beach, becoming independently wealthy, marrying my dream girl, and there must have been some mention of a yacht or a Lamborghini in there somewhere. Well, Hiram walked off the stage and began looking at the note cards and stopped to talk to a man who was probably in his early 40s. And he asked the man if he would mind sharing what he had written on his note card. Well, Hiram invited the man to join him on stage, and Hiram began describing an I-beam, you know, the steel beams used in construction. 
and he offered the man $20 to walk across an imaginary I-beam on stage. It was a line four inches wide, about the same width as an I-beam, and about 20 feet long. So with no real risk, the man walked with one foot in front of the other the length of the imaginary beam, and Hiram gave him $20. Hiram then asked us to imagine that he placed an I-beam about three feet in the air. And with the crowd buzzing in agreement, the man said he'd be willing to walk across the I-beam to get any of the items on his list of goals. Well, Hiram's tone began to be more serious as he then raised the challenge. He moved the imaginary I-beam on top of the Las Vegas Hilton, spanning the distance between two tall towers. Hiram asked the man if he'd be willing to walk the I-beam placed that high in the air. Hiram upped the ante, saying, and it's beginning to mist, and the winds have really picked up. Hiram then said, I'll give you everything on that list of yours if you'd be willing to walk across that I-beam, the oceanfront home, the financial security, etc. But the man responded, no. In fact, there was no amount of money, no material possession in the world that would make him do it. Well, Hiram then asked the man if he had children, and he said, yes, I have a son who's 11 and a daughter who's 9. Dad, Hiram said somberly, your kids are in danger, and they're being held by a thread at the other end of that I-beam and will soon fall to their death. The silence in the room was palpable. The man stood staring at Hiram, and seconds later, a tear leaked down his face, and he said, it's not even a question. My children are my world. And I'm not walking across the I-beam. I'm running across the I-beam no matter how high in the air it is. Then Hiram stated the obvious. My friend, I think you need to go rewrite your list. Well, on that summer day, I learned the concept of discovering what matters most. In other words, what would I walk across the I-beam for? You see, we can come back from the dead... We can resuscitate our goals. We can give our true effort when we're working for what matters. In your business, are you working for what matters? To get your life back? To help others revive their life? To secure your future or your children's future? What is it that really matters? When you find that, you find your CPR. Remember, the answers to three questions. What drives? What works? And what matters? The answers to these questions will lead you to renewal and resuscitation in your life. Now, in answering the primary question, how do I get my life back? We may need to answer this question. What have I lost that I wish I hadn't lost? For example, we may lose the feeling of closeness with a friend or a spouse. and We can lose the sense of purpose towards a goal. Spiritually, we may feel less close to God or less in tune with him. And thinking clearly about what we've lost and what it means to us can help us find the strength to make the changes we need. And when it comes to getting your life back, please know this. You're not alone. We all need to revive a few things in our life from time to time. So, let go of past regrets about losing a bit of yourself or your purpose and move on to action. I've learned action precedes the feeling. You have to act as if you have purpose or feeling before purpose or feeling will return. And typically, this means adding new action or movement to your life. 
That means going and doing when you don't feel like going and doing. Get up, go for a walk, work your contact list, exercise. Any movement will begin to restore to you the feeling needed for resuscitation. Also, add new people to your life. This works for me. New people bring inspiration, new ideas, energy, and interests. And while you're at it, learn something new. Read. Newness in one area of your life will help you find newness in other areas as well. And last, give yourself a symbol or saying to remember your new path. You know, in the New Testament, we read the story about Jesus choosing his disciples. Andrew, the brother of Simon, heard Jesus preach, and he went to find his brother. He said, Simon, we found the Messiah. And the scripture says that he led Simon to Jesus. Well, Jesus looked at Simon and said, you are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas. Now, Cephas means rock, and when translated, it's Peter. It's interesting. The first thing Jesus did was give Simon a new name a new way of looking at himself, a symbol of a rock, solid, foundational, and firm. And Peter would indeed live up to his name. Get your life back. Give yourself a new calling, a new name if you need, a symbol to carry you forward as you find what drives you, what works, and what matters. And when you do, you will get your life, your business, your goals back on track to where you should be going. As we end today, remember, we all need a little CPR from time to time. So find the drivers upon which to focus that will take you back to where you should be going. Remember, success leaves clues. Find what works and do what works. And remember what matters. And watch, you'll get your life back to where you want it to be. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And be sure to join us again next week as we discover the next steps to opening your eyes to who and what you can become. And I look forward to being with you again soon.